Thank you for checking out the Missio Day Humble Park podcast and joining us as we join God as he makes all things new. We are excited to pursue his heart for the greatest city on earth and the center of the city in this great neighborhood of Humble Park. Hey guys, thank you for being here this morning. Um, it's kind of appropriate that Leslie, my wife, is not going to be here because uh, I'm going to be speaking about her a lot. So <laughs> I'm going to be speaking about Jesus and Zipporah as well, but it's, it's going to be close. So um, she'll get to listen to this and get embarrassed in private. Um, so if we can uh, start off in prayer. Father God, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the inspiration that it provokes in our hearts. We pray that you will lead us through an intellectual understanding to a tangible response to the reality and goodness and sacrifice and love of your love in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our passage this morning is from uh, Exodus chapter 4, verses 20 to 26. Uh, and yeah, that's going to be up there. I'll kind of read it through now and then we'll be kind of bouncing back into it as we track through. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt, and he took the staff of God in his hand. Then the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time she said bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. If you didn't know who Zipporah was before this morning, it's totally fine. I'm pretty sure you won't forget her in a hurry. When I first read that passage, I was struck by the connections with the first few chapters of Romans. Not because I have the book of Romans memorized, FYI, I just happened to be working through it at the time. And Paul is talking about life under the law, living a life under the law versus a life under grace. And with that in mind, I'll take us through the passage using that NIV translation we've just read, plus a more modern translation by N.T. Wright. And when we're done, I hope you'll know Zipporah, not just for a confusing punchline moment in the Old Testament, but for one of the many heroic women in the Bible who point us to Jesus. Sometimes when I'm describing a funny situation, Leslie will jump right in and deliver the punchline after I've barely started. (laughs) She's one of nature's great enthusiasts. She wants to cut to the chase and keep things moving. If the book she's reading is making her nervous, she'll skip forward and read the last few pages just to make sure it's going to be all right at the end. She demands to know how a movie ends if I've watched it already. Will there be a wedding? If the answer is no, that's the wrong answer. My feeling is, when you rush to the ending, you miss out on the how and the why. 
you miss the story's natural build toward the climax, the seeding of information that explains the crazy finish. We've just read the climax, not just in this, of this passage, but of Zipporah's whole life to that point, bridegroom of blood. Whenever the Bible throws us a curveball, I find it's helpful to remember this document we're reading is old. My kids were watching an episode of Doctor Who from 1989 last week. Paul couldn't get over how hokey it was. Yeah, it was hokey. It was made 33 years ago on a budget of about 300 pounds, it seemed. The verses we've just read were set down roughly 3,400 years ago in a place thousands of miles away in a climate and culture totally unlike our own. It's okay for it to be weird. It's okay that we don't behave exactly like that anymore. But it's actually a hallmark of authenticity that everything is not easy to understand. But if we avoid tricky passages, then we all miss what God wants to say through them. Zipporah is the right person at the right time, plucking her husband from certain death in this amazing, dynamic moment of action before returning to the background. Not everyone is called to be a leader, but all of us must be ready to use our gifts, to use our skills and experience in the service of God's kingdom. So let's look at the how and the why. How did God prepare Zipporah? Why was circumcision so significant? And that will help us to understand Zipporah's struggles and strength as she navigated a life under the law versus a life under grace. So starting in verse 19, now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, who were the Midianites? So Midian covered the south and east of the Sinai Peninsula. You know, it kind of tapers down. An area that is now part of Egypt and Saudi Arabia. So it was that section of the south and east and then on the west of that angle of the Red Sea as well. In Genesis 23, Abraham gave gifts to the sons of Hagar, his concubine, and Keturah, his second wife, and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Those sons of Abraham's second wife included Midian, who interrelated with the descendants of Ishmael became known interchangeably as the Ishmaelites and the Midianites. Many of them were nomads, moving from place to place as traders rather than farmers. Their region was not fertile, like Canaan in the north or Egypt in the west, so there was pressure on resources, especially water. Genesis 25, verse 18, his, that's Ishmael's descendants, lived in hostility to all the tribes related to them. Those were Zipporah's ancestors. The world she grew up in was torn with strife and animosity. That was the world that Moses, in exile, burst in on in Genesis 2, chapter 16 and 17. Now a priest in Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to, fill, to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue. Yea, Moses, he gets to be a hero. It must have been like old times for him. He had once commanded the Egyptian armies to great victories in Ethiopia before fleeing his country in disgrace. Verse 19, when the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? Zipporah was having to fight for water every day. So she was given in Moses to marriage. It's a triple win for her dad. He gets water security, free labor, and his first daughter is married. And they live in Midian for 40 years. I think we can assume these years were pretty good to Zipporah too. By contrast, living in Midian weighed heavily on Moses. 
He named his first son Gershom, meaning, I have become an alien in a foreign land. Sheesh, Moses. It makes me think of my dog, Oreo. He has the face of molten wax. Even when his tail is going crazy, his face says, just end this for me, why don't you? During our own Oreo moments, it's tempting to see periods of quiet in our lives in terms of wasted potential. But we mustn't mistake failures or a period of quiet quiet as unused time. I failed my high school exams when I was 18, and for a few empty moments I thought my life was over. Through that failure, God put me on a path way beyond what I'd been dreaming of up until that point. I wound up fluking my way into one of the best universities in the country a year later. It wasn't literally a fluke, but my grandfather called the admissions office on my behalf because I never expected to even get an interview. So it's embarrassing, but it was worth it. Moses is in the desert for 40 years, longing for home. When God finally calls him, he hesitates, asking again and again for reassurance until chapter 4, verse 3, he's literally begging, oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. Moses is living his life under the law, not under grace, and you can see his struggle. So continuing Exodus 4, uh, Exodus 4 uh, verse 9, I'll read it for you. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt, and he took the staff of God in his hand. Now Zipporah's life gets upended. Harassed by shepherds all her young life, married off to an Egyptian who turns out to be a Hebrew, who incidentally had been married before, according to Josephus, 40 years, thinking she's on track for a tasty inheritance, and then put on a donkey, headed for a foreign country, where they're going to be joining a population of slaves. And her husband didn't even seem totally sold on the idea. But she went anyway. In spite of all that, she went. Did she have a choice? We don't know. But her actions speak to her faith, displaying a very clear contrast to her husband. This series is about living with expectations. Moses, in verse 18 of this chapter, thinks the Israelites might even be dead when they arrive. Zipporah, as we will see, is guided by a faith that will soon spur her to action. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. It's always been disquieting to me when I read verses like that. And there are a few of them where it says that God hardens someone's heart. It seems contrary to fairness, contrary to love. When seen in the context of what Paul talks about in Romans 7, it makes a lot more sense. God's purpose in giving the commandments, he says, was to make people aware of their sin. What was God up to, asks N.T. Wright, giving the law, knowing we could not fulfill it, knowing it would intensify the problem of sin, allow sin to grow to its full height, but actually in order that it might do so. If we're to imagine sin in a courtroom, facing charges that are minor and insignificant, then the penalty in fairness, would be minor and insignificant. Sin had to be allowed to do its worst in order that God, through Jesus, could do his best. That is how sin has been defeated in its entirety. 
The hardening was consistent with the posture of Pharaoh's heart. He was already enslaving and, enslaving and torturing the entire Hebrew nation. He had to remain in sin for God's salvation to be drawn to its fullest measure. Our world tells us that right and wrong are subjective things. What's wrong for one person is not necessarily wrong for another. There's a famous line from the movie The Usual Suspects, which I later found out echoes C.S. Lewis, Baudelaire, and others. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world he doesn't exist. Israel needed the law in order to recognize sin for what it is. When our lens tells us that moral absolutes are subjective, we blind ourselves to the reality of sin. You can't overcome an obstacle if you don't believe it's there. The law highlighted the fact that as humans, we can't fulfill the law's commandments on our own. Romans 7 verse 13, it was sin in order that it might appear as sin, working through the good thing, he's talking about the law, and producing death in me. This was in order that sin might become very sinful indeed through the commandment. This is not an indictment of our failure to live up to the law or the law's failure in defining an unattainable standard. Only when we see that we are slaves to sin can we see our obstacle clearly. Obey God's law or face the punishment. That's the choice that Moses will give to Pharaoh, unaware that God is still waiting on Moses' obedience too. Verse 22. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. So let's take a moment quickly to talk about what the word son meant in Abraham and Moses' time. It wasn't simply a designation of gender. In that time, the eldest son inherited most of the family's wealth. Doesn't sound fair, but it was necessary. You may be aware uh, that a new king ascended to the throne in the UK recently. There's been a bit of coverage over here. He received the full inheritance, not one quarter of the inheritance, if the country had been split four ways between him and his three siblings, you'd have four much smaller countries. Repeat that process over a couple more generations and you'd have no country left, just a bunch of bickering little kingdoms. For the sake of strength and continuity and critical mass, the land and most of the assets were given to the firstborn son, whose responsibility it was to take care of his family. That's how it worked under the law at that time. When we judge Old Testament practices through the lens of 21st century Western values of whatever type, we risk getting upset about the context and miss the point. Minister and Professor Frederick Bigner said, the danger of pluralism is that it becomes factionalism. Very quickly, our individual quests for justice brings us into conflict with one another. As Christians, we should be advocating on behalf of those who are treated unfairly in our society. But it helps to understand that demanding the same for everyone does not always result in true equality. Leslie and I try to run our house under a spirit of grace. So when Paul wants Doritos, I don't give Doritos to Paul, Naomi, and the dog. Why not? Because although it's the same for everyone, it wouldn't be fair. Naomi prefers Pringles and the dog would get sick. We mustn't compare the lives of Zipporah and Moses and conclude, well, that's not fair. 
God's plan for true equality had not yet come to fruition. Sin had not yet done its worst. Sonship in this society meant the privilege of intimacy, of inheritance. Paul's description of a life in grace was radical and dangerous to a first century world tied down by the law. Women get the same inheritance as men. Romans 8, 15 to 17. You received the spirit of sonship in whom we call out Abba Father. When that happens, it is the spirit testifying along with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we're children, we're also heirs. Intimacy and inheritance through the spirit, not the law. Let my son go. God is saying to Pharaoh, let me give my people their inheritance, their future, or I will take your inheritance, your future, away. Now we get into it. Verse, verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off their son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Some scholars translate that as, she threw it at Moses' feet. Surely, verse 25 continues, you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. So why was God ready to kill Moses over circumcision? And why did Zipporah's actions save his life? Circumcision was a mark of identity for the Jewish people. It was an external sign of inner belonging. In Genesis 17, God makes a covenant with Abraham. That is, unlike the earlier ones, conditional. You will father many nations. I will be your God. I will give you the land of Canaan. As for you, you are to undergo circumcision, verse 11, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And then of particular relevance here in verse 14, any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Moses had broken God's covenant by failing to circumcise his son. Zipporah, a Midianite, who was by birth outside of that covenant, knows God's will when her husband doesn't, and she acts to save his life. The law draws attention to our sins. Grace draws our attention to God. The girl who had grown up fighting every day for water, who was part of an outcast community, became God's chosen instrument, armed with a flint knife to save the hero. You are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. This is such a great husband and wife moment. As you know, Leslie is far too sweet to ever raise her voice to me. So let's imagine a purely hypothetical situation where a bookish foreigner with a hokey accent got himself into hot water. They'd arrived back. He'd forgotten the key. They were on vacation. The babies were screaming. Everyone needed a bathroom. She gets them inside. She sorts it out. She yells at him in frustration. This was your job, but you left it till the last minute, and I had to get it done. I almost got killed for you. This whole thing is for you and your people in the first place. Zipporah was living by her wits. Under the threat of the law, but in the spirit of grace, there's someone else who will save us, but without the hesitation, without the yelling, who desperately wants to save us. And I think it's significant, really significant, that blood was part of this instant redemption. Let's go back to Romans, chapter 3, verse 25. God put Jesus forth as the place of mercy through his faithfulness by means of his blood. He did this to demonstrate his covenant justice. 
Moses' failure to follow the as-for-you part of God's covenant indicated his lack of faith. Zipporah's corrective action demonstrated her faith. She's living by the spirit of grace, even back then. In her outburst, Zipporah is unwittingly signaling forward to the great redemption that would come when the sin of the world, our sin, is finally in court, having been raised to its fullest, most appalling height, the sentence against us is death, but our punishment is taken by the one sinless man who could bear it and conquer it. Was it fair to him? No. Was it equal for him? No. Isaiah 53 verse 5 declares, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus received the guilty verdict on our behalf. He paid the debt with his blood. He balanced the books, taking on the sin of the world. Zipporah saved Moses by fulfilling the law on his behalf. Jesus frees us in the same way. Blood has to be shed for justice to be done. Can you imagine how it would be if we still lived under the law? The altar that many churches still have is purely symbolic. It's the communion table. It represents Christ's sacrifice. Without Jesus, we'd still be sacrificing animals up here every week to atone for our sins. Can you imagine? Our Western world is so squeamish and removed from the realities of death, we'd have found an antiseptic and guilt-free way of getting that done. But that's the reality we easily forget when we dismiss the effects of sin in our world and in our lives. The wages of sin is death. Our debt has been paid. We live under grace, not under law. Romans 8 verse 3. For God has done what the law, being weak because of human flesh, was incapable of doing. God sent his own son in likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. And right there in the flesh, he condemned sin. Zipporah saved Moses so that he could save others. This is community. Our faith-based actions, our faith-based actions ripple out. Zipporah's rippled out and extrapolated to the holding back of the Red Sea. God doesn't need us all to be Moses, but for every Moses, there's an Aaron, a Joshua, a Miriam, and a Zipporah. But listen to this. There are no small roles in the kingdom. Writer Tom Stoppard wrote a play called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead. He took two very minor characters from Hamlet. They're on stage for maybe 15 minutes during that five-hour play. And he wrote a whole play from their perspective. So now with a focus on them, we get to see them as fully rounded characters. God doesn't see you as a younger brother or a little sister or as a bit part in someone else's life. He sees you as the heir to his kingdom the eldest son who will inherit everything. The Bible only gives us a couple of glimpses of Zipporah's life. She was a woman. She was a foreigner. Most likely, she wasn't even Moses' first wife. But to God, she was a central character with a vital role to play in the establishment of his kingdom. So finally, what's the purpose of our salvation? Think for a moment about the posture of your heart when your employer pays you at the end of the week or the end of the month. You might say thank you, but your heart is saying, that's right, that's correct, about time too. 
Now, what's your heart's posture when your parent gives you an unexpected gift out of the blue? If you're nine years old, it's gratitude, pure, unadulterated gratitude. That's the difference between a life under the law and a life under grace. God wants to give us his inheritance because we're his children, not because we earned it. Now, if you're 40 and your parents give you a gift, it's gratitude, sure, but it's a little guilt as well. Oh, you shouldn't have. I don't deserve this. Because we grow up and we get it into our heads that we need to earn what we receive. Or we're far too self-sufficient to receive something for free. Gratitude leads us to worship. Look back at verse 22. Let my son go so he may worship me. The chapter ends with a redeemed Moses declaring God's truth to the Israelite leaders. Verse 31, and they believed. And when they heard the Lord had, was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Let's pray. Father God, we recognize and confess our sin. We thank you for the power and completeness of your atoning sacrifice. We pray for your strength to more fully conform to our original design, living lives of gratitude and worship in you. In your name we pray. Amen.